Ladies and gentlemen, it is your boy, Sam Gilstrap. We are back on air, the Ghost Lights Podcast, episode 54, and our very special guest this go-round is the one, the only, Donnie L. Betts. Donnie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Number 54, that's a, that's a good one. That's a dang good number, I'd it's say. It's a great one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I am so happy to have you on. It's been a long time coming. I think I've been talking to you about being a guest on my podcast since Black Elk Speaks, which is like five years ago. Five years ago, yeah. So, oh, my I mean, God. You've been out there doing the work, man. I appreciate oh, doing the work and like also allowing myself to like sleep in most days, <laughs> best I can. <laughs> I mean, I try. I try and stay on top of it, but uh, I'm also, I'm also cute. I'm lazy. Well, there you go. You know, you got to admit what you are. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I got to own it. I got to wear it. Absolutely. Um, ladies and gentlemen, today's podcast is unofficially brought to you by Corona Extra. I just got done with a four-mile walk. I'm going to have a cold beer. Hey, that makes two of us. I just did four miles as well. Oh, nice. Very good. Very good. It's important. You got to stay active. Have you been five every day? Four to five every day? Is that something you've always done, or is that something that started with the with the quarantine? No, I, I started that probably – well, I've always been a walker. Yeah. I love to walk. Uh, and so I started this probably four or five years ago uh, consistently. Um uh, my my work until a, a few more weeks uh, is at University of Colorado Anschutz campus. So I usually will walk around campus uh, until you know, of course, the lockdown, and I work from home now. But um, so yeah, I just try to do that, man. Just try to keep the weight off that way. Try to keep my old joints moving and that sort of thing. You know, I've always had back pain since I was about eighteen, nineteen, injured in football. So that's the way to keep everything going, keep the blood flowing. So um, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a problem. I mean, if you're over six feet, which I know you are, I mean, yes, joints and back pain that is that is an everyday thing. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My friend who's under six feet said he doesn't feel for me. Like, oh. Okay, <laughs> I don't feel for you either. When you need Absolutely. to read, hey, read. I can get on rides <laughs> that you can't get on. You gotta, right. stay, you gotta stay on the ground. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Just yeah, invite him to Elitch's and laugh at him every time he gets a chance. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. I kind of remember that sale. <laughs> I'll let you use that one for sure. Right. But thank you so much for having me on. You know, I know oh, dude. it's been a long time coming, but I'm honored to be here, especially on something that's named Ghost Lights mm-hmm. a Podcast. It's a very significant name for anybody who's in the in our industry, in the theater community. Um, Absolutely. So it's special. It's special. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm truly honored, and and again, I want to reiterate. I've tried to I've, I've tried to make make the time and 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 make myself get you on here because from the day we met at my audition for Black Elk Speaks, I just knew you were you were a different director, a different person, and mm. I'm over the course of our my growth in the career next to you, like it it's you you've never let me down as being truly. A, a singular entity out here and I'm, and I'm thankful that I could get you on. It's an honor for me as well. I'm honored. I'm honored. Thank you for the kind words. Of course. How has this week, the last two weeks been for you? Well, uh, it's been really, for me, mentally exhausting. Uh, I haven't been 
out there on the front line protesting, but I've been doing it as much as I can on the back end. And on the back end is doing just what you're doing, uh, creating more podcasts, doing interviews with some of those people who are out on the front line, trying to stay in touch with the politicians who are, who are policymakers. Had a wonderful interview with Terrence Roberts that's going to air on Thursday on KGNU Radio, um, talking about the bill that was actually birthed uh, at, his, at his dining room table with his partner there. And uh, before it reached um, Leslie Hearn, who really turned into a bill that could be turned into legislation. And that's the uh, police uh, accountability bill that's gonna be signed by Governor Polis coming up. So um, also had a chance to interview Reverend um, Terrence Holm. Uh, he's known as Big T. I've been an activist in the community for many years, but he was in a VA hospital for almost three months with COVID-19. Uh, on and off of ventilator several times, thought he was gone many times. Um, but once again, he survived and uh, pretty soon he's going back on the front line uh, as much as he can doing that kind of hard work. So um, yeah, so that's the kind of work I've been doing. We had a wonderful, wonderful discussion at Dazzle's um, restaurant uh, this past Tuesday. It's called Conversation from the Stage of Dazzle's. And I had people like on like Hoser, Hoser was there, uh, Ryan Food, um, Lionel Young, Such, uh, Terrence Roberts again. Uh, we had business people there. Um, we also had my grandson, David Betts, who was there to give his thoughts, uh, you know, as an 11-year-old, how he's feeling about what's going on on George Floyd. And uh, you'll see my shirt, of course, it says, I can't breathe. My head is 1619, uh, just to emphasize once again, uh, when the ex-slave hit these shores and ever since we've been having a, a knee on our neck and we definitely can't breathe. Um, so it's uh, something that's been a, something that I've been trying to be involved with as much as possible, and especially from an artistic side, I've been trying to do that. Um, many years ago, many moons ago, um, you know, yes, I was on, on the front line doing those things. I was part of the sit-ins that we did in, in um, colleges and taking over administration buildings and for black studies and, and Latino studies. Uh, so I was part of that whole movement, you know, of course, uh, Occupy, Wall Street, all those kind of things. So I've, I've been there to do that in person, uh, marches, either marching or also like covering them uh, as someone's a documentarian, because that's what I do as well. But this time I just had to um, kind of not sit it out, but take a different tack. Um, my different tack is um, seeing organizations that I can support and are encouraging other people to support, especially things like uh, freedomfund.org uh, here in Colorado and the uh, bail projects, getting people out or uh, being incarcerated and out because they, they can't afford to pay a bail, you know? So it's like, um, I think the term that um, they use is once again, we plan ransom uh, and we uh, bind our enslaved people out of bondage, but they're in prison and incarcerated. So those are things I've been trying to do and, and thank you so much for asking. But yeah, it's been uh, mentally exhausting, but you just gotta keep going. You know, you can't, you can't give up. I, uh, if you don't mind me asking, um, would, would you mind touching on the type of exhaustion you feel. I mean, I can speak for me as a 36 year old guy who's done no protesting before, marching in the hot sun for four hours, surrounded by kids that have been doing it since 8 a.m. and being tired and blistered and tired of that. Sure. There's, a, there's, a, there's another layer to that exhaustion that I'm both privileged and completely unaware to not know about. Right, right. 
Um, well, yeah, my, like I said, mine is mental exhaustion. I'm sure the people who've been out there, and I've spoken to some, and I've, like I said, I've interviewed some who've been out there on the front line. They are mentally exhausted as well, too, as well as physically exhausted because they are marching, you know, all day in the hot sun or in the evening with tear gas going and rubber bullets flying and, and people out there who you don't know exactly who they are. Are they allies or are they part of uh, the people that are against you? So that's the tension that um, you don't really know. I think when I was doing a lot of things on the front line, we knew who was totally against you. You know, although we found out later on that, you know, every movement is always infiltrated by uh, by uh, interloopers. Um, so I'm sure this one as well. And we found out many plain, plain coast policemen, uh, people who are in, the, in the different movements who don't agree with you um, and will cause you harm. So that's the kind of exhaustion I think they're feeling. And I just I just um, pray for them. I uh, lift them up as much as I can. Um, and for me, uh, mine is nothing compared to people on the front line. Mine is nothing compared to people who are fighting uh, for policy change. Um, I just do what I can. And I tell, I think I used with you when we weren't talking on, on, um, on the Zoom, mm -hmm. get in where you fit in. Yeah. I, was a, I was a young lady who uh, was on the news the other night. She had created a song. I think she was a sophomore in high school about uh, George Floyd. And she was saying the same too. Her parents didn't want her to go to the protest and that sort of thing, but she wanted to do something. So that's what she did. So I think a lot of people who maybe like me, maybe like you or other people, some have guilt feelings. Yeah. They haven't been there. And I would say to them, don't feel guilty. You have to do what you're comfortable in doing, you know, because it's not for everyone. You know, I know activists who've been activists in this community for years have not been there, but they've been doing the other hard work, you know, things that are not seen, things that you don't get any view for the news for. Um, that's what they've been doing. And that's important because it's all like a domino effect. It all leads into the other. What the Chief Joseph said, we all connected, you know? So that's the same way, you know, we all connected in some ways, you know, and I'm glad to see that uh, because all, all, um, new things, all revolutions have been intergenerational. And this is very much intergenerational, heavy on the younger side, which I think is great. So Sam, I think there's a couple of things that that that, uh, that have led into the consistent um, protests and um, rallies and everything that we've seen. That is, we are in COVID-19. So we're in lockdown. So there's no school, there's no sports, you know? There's, there's a lot of things that would have been distractions before, you know, it's even limited access to here in Colorado, the mountains. So be involved. There's no excuse now. You don't have that distraction of those things I just named and other things that might be in your life or family holidays and that kind of stuff. Even swimming pools are closed. You know, for me, as a grandfather with three grandsons, that's crazy because <laughs> they need something to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they need exercise, you know, so they can only scooter, they can only bike so much because now it's getting hot, you know. And oh, they, yeah. they all swim, they love to swim. So once again, because there aren't those distractions, people have an opportunity now to real do some real work and have to be very intentional about it. So we just have to be intentional about what we do and find an organization that you can support 
what is NAACP Legal Fund, as I said, freedomfund.org, the Bell Project, um, Ground Zero. Uh, locally, there are tons. A couple of things, ones I just uh, that I mentioned are national, but they all help everybody. You know, yeah. of course, Black Lives Matter's 5280, uh, who's leading the, is on the ground leading everything here. Um, but support your politicians, call them up, and if they're not doing what they want you want them to do, vote them out. Make sure that we vote them out. Yeah. So that's what I've been feeling this last two weeks. So what can I do? You know, what yeah. can I do that helps to cause in my way that I can do? Yeah, that's, thank, thank you for, 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 for sharing that with us. I mean, it's one of the things that, I mean, as I mentioned to you before we got started today, is it, it was imperative. Because like in the middle of that week, I had, a, I had already had a, recorded a podcast before or as the shit was hitting the fan while I was still not paying attention. Yes. And I mean, depending on your perspective, obviously the shit has already hit the fan. Yes. Absolutely. And so but it was one of those things like I had this podcast, I uploaded it in the middle of the week while we're still marching, while there's still legislation that hasn't been decided upon yet. Mm. And, you know, it's one of those things I've been watching the news and I'm, I'm thankful that Denver seems to have been relatively proactive. Yes. I mean, I'm extremely happy with the ruling about not having a, a police officer on DPS grounds anymore. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, it, for, for, the, for those of you who, who listen to the Ghost Lights podcast and don't know what I do when I'm not acting and doing this podcast, I, I do a lot of lying down, but I also work at a, at a public school in West Denver that is, it's, it's tough. The neighborhood itself is tough. Maybe not, not the kids. The kids are great, but I, I can't imagine the, what the type of stress and strain that puts on somebody seeing a cop every day in the place they go to learn. Yes. And I know why we, we came up with the idea of putting a cop in there, safe, better safer than sorry, but there's another way to teach safety. There's another we another way to create a a place of comfort for these children, and you can do that through listening to them and honestly loving them first, and and focusing on restorative justice as opposed to punitive pipeline justice. I totally agree. I totally agree. And you look at you know even having I, I think East. I think it may be not so anymore, but East High School had uh, literally a police station, substation in their school. How yeah. crazy is that, you know? Yeah. And they had it when I was there. But there you go. Yeah. So, you know, what? but what has it prevented? You know, it hasn't prevented any fights, hadn't prevented any school shootings, you know? I mean, school shootings still go on, you know, and you say in the aftermath, but where was a school resource um, officer? Who knows where they were? I mean, sometimes they react very quickly and they've prevented or either not prevented, but they've been quick to react once it started. Uh, so kudos to them who have done that. But for the most part, like you said, uh, you have that presence in a school and that sends all kinds of messages to people, you know, when they're in handcuffs on eight years old, you know, eight-year-old kids, you know, um, seven-year-old kids or somebody in the kindergarten. What kind of, listen, when I was eight years old, I was handcuffed, you know? Uh, it wasn't even just handcuffed, they're like shackles, you know? I mean, I, I grew up in, in East Texas 
And um, at eight years old, eight years old, I was I was handcuffed, you know, shackled. Uh, my mom was, and today, like today, ninety-five degree heat, you know, all that sweating. I was shot at by the same cop who put the handcuffs on me. Well, I mean, a cop. They were, what do you call them? The sheriffs, I guess. Um, so um, that is, if I'm talking about it today, and I'm six dec six decades into my life. That's the kind of impact it have on a child. Yeah. So we don't need that. What we need is all of that money that goes into a police department is to be redirected to education. Now they're going to be shortfalls coming up this year because of you know not ability to pay taxes and that sort of thing. So there's money in these police department that can go towards education to help fill some of that gap. Of course, it can't fill it all, but it can help fill some of that gap uh, that's there. You know, all these military weapons that they have, sell them, destroy them, whatever the case may be. You don't need them. You know, you see police out there in riot gear. It's not even riot gear. It's the kind of gear they wear in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. You know, that's what they wear there. What do you need that for? Because your own citizens who most 98% um, are not having weapons on themselves. They have a cardboard sign, you know. Yeah. Um, they may have a flashlight to 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 uh, project uh, something George Floyd or somebody of Beyonce Taylor on the on the Capitol. Mm -hmm. So why do you need all this weaponry? Why do you need water cannons? Why do you need uh, flash bombs and all that kind of stuff? You know, what happened to conversation? And I say conversation because it's ironic with Rashawn Brooks. He was having a conversation, you know, although he was drunk, having a conversation with this cop. Why can't the cop say, okay, sir, I'm gonna call you a lift. I'm gonna call you a cab. Say so you live around the corner? Let's walk around the corner. I think you're gonna call your sister. You know, you seem like you're very nice. Yeah. You were sleeping in your car, leave your car here. We make sure he gets back to you, okay? Mm -hmm. No, you gotta put handcuffs on him. Nobody wants to have handcuffs put on him, nobody. That's why he resisted. Who wants to be shackled? Nobody. So, I don't know, I'm rambling on, Sam, because oh. you know, it's, it's on my mind, it's on my heart. Um, so, anyway. I think, I, I want, uh, don't, don't feel like you gotta apologize for that. Yeah. Not here, not, not ever. I, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's important, A, to have these conversations, but one, like, Theater does not exist in a world of not. It doesn't exist in a utopian society. I mean, theater all over the world. It is. It is shaped by chaos. It is shaped by all these things. And for a, a theater podcast to to exist and ignore those situations, right. I I feel like I'm. I, I started this because I wanted to have conversations with other artists in the community. And I wanted to grow my friend base. And there was a part of a networking thing that was all to it. Like, I, I can't not acknowledge that creation. But as it's grown to what it is now, I mean, I mean, it's not big. It's, 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 it's basically just a handful of friends that listen to me and I love y'all. But I would be lying to you if this stuff wasn't weighing heavy on my heart as well. And I would be doing not just a disservice, but I would be, it would be a slap in the face to talk about 
the art that I love as if we were living in a different and better time. Exactly, exactly. And that's what I say, you know, uh, as artists, you, you have to create art. Art reflects life, life reflects art. And um, there are great things being done in Colorado and throughout the country that have been done beforehand. As you know, you took part in one of my, my radio dramas, um, The Tale of the Bullet, which is just what we're talking about, about the police shooting, okay? And also, uh, you know, kind of black on black crime as well, too. Um, with that, you know, you had um, art that was reflecting life. The podcast before that was called Black with a capital B um, that was converted from a play that uh, Curious had produced by Lamario Mina. But we made a uh, radio drama out of it that talked about Black Lives Matters, explained Black Lives Matters. You know, five years ago, whatever, it would have been Black Lives Matter. You say Black Lives Matter, you're a terrorist group. Say it now, that's what you better say now. Yeah. Everybody's identifying around the world. So once again, theater, it, it's, it's all over that. Film is all over that. Visual arts with the murals and, and paintings and so on and so forth. Um, whatever the case may be, art is reflecting the times in real time. Yes. That's what I love about it. It's reflecting art, uh, reflecting the times in real times. <clears throat> and that's what theaters like Freedom Theater in the 60s did out of Louisiana. Uh, the Freedom Theater had those kind of productions. Um, and it was a black, black theater company. And, um, and they've reflected those times. I mean, um, the Negro Ensemble Company, when, when they first founded it, it, those kind of things. You know, these, these are the kind of organizations I looked at growing up. Um, not knowing I was going to do theater, not even really know anything about theater. You know, I was a farm kid, you know, football player and all that kind of stuff. But as I learned and, and started to travel, these are the kind of things that I saw reflected, you know, that I wanted to do with my life. That's what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't know I didn't want to be a politician. I didn't want to be in the military or anything like that. But I wanted to do something that would impact people um, in some kind of way. And that's why I chose to... Uh, Follow the path that I've been following for many, many years now. That the desire at such a young age to have some type of impact in some way, as you just described, is is unique. I, I, at least it's unique from my perspective. Obviously, now when we were talking at the beginning here, how this the, the Black Lives Matter movement at this time seems to be infused with a lot of younger attitudes and hearts behind it what was it that spurred that impetus in you to 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 stand up for something through art as at that age when you saw those theater companies was it just i don't know please explain that to me uh they spoke to me or spoke to me um playwrights spoke to me um i mean i was reading the works of james baldwin you know, he spoke to me, you know, um, uh, in the Shaka Shange. I mean, all these people spoke to me. The word spoke to me. Um, it was, quote unquote, radical at the time or whatever. But I was also a group that really spoke to me, too. Uh, the Last Poets. And the Last Poets were their, you know, spoken word group with music and that sort of thing. So we had a little group in my college. I first went to college in San Angelo, Texas. 
and we had a group that would tour it around. And these were all um, three athletes and one musician. Um, uh, but the athletes were all musicians too. So I mean, I couldn't play, but I wrote the poetry, you know. And um, that was, I just found that exciting that we could say something that way. And that, that was when too, that we took over one of the admin buildings and said, this is what we need. We need a black, black studies department. We need a Latino studies department. That's what we need so we can find out about me. Because I didn't know about me. You know, yeah. me was on the bottom of the library shelves. That's why I discovered me, you know? I discovered those plays I just talked about. I discovered those writers I'm just talking about. Um, it wasn't with the regular stuff, you know? I mean, of course, you know, you had the Dewey system and you were supposed to do that. But somehow they weren't with part of the Dewey system, you know? <laughs> I'm saying Dewey system, somebody who's young, they won't even know what that is. I'll, you know? I'll, I'll tell them about the Dewey Decimal System later. <laughs> Before there was Google, Right, exactly. So anyway, I mean, that's, that's where I got my inspiration from that, you know. And then watching what I thought were dignified, incredible actors like Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte being the activist that he was, and watching how his involvement in the movement, although I was, you know, 19, 11 years old, I could see those people. And, and inspiration with that, Dick Gregory, um, you know, um, you wrote the Dutchman, right? No, that's a Mary Baraka. Oh, Mary Baraka. Right. Dick Gregory is what started as a straight lace tie, um, comedian and saw his transformation too, like others. And this is what I need to be become a real radical, became a real health person who showed people how to eat more healthy, that sort of thing. Um, uh, we just all lost him last year, but, um, those are the kind of people I listen to, their words and their actions and watching what they were doing, what they were saying, and they inspired me to go on. The biggest influence that someone had on me even early in my career, although I was still doing it when I first got to Denver, just really getting heavy into it when I moved to Denver, um, was Oscar Brown Jr. And Oscar Brown Jr., I'd heard his music um, before, and so he did songs like That There, a lot of these you might not know. Uh, but you know, he was very big in the 60s, 70s, 80s, but he was a spoken word artist, jazz singer, musician, writer, wrote over a thousand songs. And um, I did a film on his life, uh, called Music Is My Life, Politics My Mistress, the story of Oscar Brown Jr. And uh, <clears throat> those are his words. <laughs> so um, he came to do a workshops in Denver at Cleo Parker Robinson's studio. And I tell this story over and over because I just, because I love the man. Um, and after that, this is when Cleo was downtown um, Denver, like on Larimer or somewhere like that, up, upstairs. Yeah. He and his wife, Jean Pace. Jean Pace uh, really made the Afro uh, very popular because she had this huge Afro and she was beautiful and a dancer and all that kind of stuff. He said, an artist has a social responsibility to not only entertain, but to educate. Mm. And that stuck with me. And I said, that's what I want to do with my art. I want to entertain and educate at the same time. So the projects I choose, the things that I do, and now I'm being a facilitator on race um, conversations, that's what I still try to do. Um, entertain and educate. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's, uh, thank you. And your career, 
have it as it have you always followed that entertain and educate mindset or have you have you had to make sacrifices to that that mantra uh, I'll tell you as a black male actor in Colorado it's been hard to, <laughs> to make those sacrifices in order to make a living um, but I have I've, I've stuck with that I only do projects that I'm interested in <clears throat> uh, then I think it's going to move the conversation forward you mentioned Black Elf Speak. That was one. Um, you know, so uh, yeah. the other project we did, uh, written by Jeff Campbell, you know, the final fight, uh, the freedom fighter. Yeah, with Theo. That way, it had all those different historical figures in there and they're talking about Black Lives Matters and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, the radio show and the podcast that I do now called Destination Freedom Black Radio Days, um, that's about Black heroes and sheroes and not only in the past, but the present as well. Um, having an opportunity to interview people who are on the forefront and also who've done things in the past that help push the conversation, also policies forward. So yeah, I've, I've been lucky enough to do that as an actor and as a director and a producer to do those kind of things. I've turned down projects that I didn't, just didn't feel right to me. Um, that was either, either demeaning, I think, um, to the image of, of my people or other people who have been oppressed or um, I just, it's just, you know, you just want to, you only have one life. So you don't want to waste it on stuff. That's the way I look at it, you know? So I've been trying not to waste my life. Plus, you know, like I said, now I mentioned my grandsons now, how are they going to look at me and see what my legacy is? Yeah. If I've been grinning and skinning and cooning, you know, and things that I do. And that's the really way I describe it because I think some people are doing that uh, just to make a buck. Um, and sometimes Colorado community, arts community, almost forces people to do that because they don't value, really value what they can do. You know, you get the, the one show a year at the theater, you know, that involves people of color. It's changed. It's gotten much better in the last five years. Uh, I would say that. And so people are casting. Uh, and I would, I would hope that I've been part of that as well, too. I just cast people who I think are best for the role. Um, it's not no, there's no such thing as colorblind. You're casting people who are best for the role. Because um, <clears throat> you're lying if you say that. Um, so I, I, you know, but also what I've done, too, is uh, many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I, stay, I stopped taking calls with people who say, hey, do you know such and such? Do you know black actor I can get, or you know, blah, blah, blah. No, man. Go see that work. You know? Go find them for yourself. Yeah. Support their work. Support what theater they're at. They may be at a church. You know, maybe in a basement somewhere doing something. Well, go see for yourself, because that's what I do. You know? That's how I found them. So why should I do the work for you? You know, I did casting. I worked in casting in Hollywood, you know? But I was paid for it. So, you know, so um, do hey, that. I want to piggyback on that real fast. I mean, for, for those of you listening at home, uh, Donnie cast me in Black Elk Speaks. That's where we met, or officially. And he casted the rest of that show. It's like a 20-piece cast. And one of the guys he cast, he found in a hospital waiting room <laughs> who had never acted before. And in a matter of a year after that show closed, he got an agent in Santa Fe, 
had a speaking scene with Jessica Chastain and Woman Walks Ahead, and the sky's the limit now. Yeah, he's doing great. I mean, but a cause. Yeah, <laughs> that was a cause. Like yeah. Cosme yeah. Skywalker. Yeah, Skywalker. <laughs> You're a G. Like that's. And how did that happen? It took. Open it, to, yeah, open to the possibilities. First off, yeah. first off, you you have to be open to the possibility. Second thing is, you know, you just talk to people. And Sam, as you know, I mean, you, you, you quote unquote audition, but most time I don't really audition people. I talk to them at the audition, you know, they want to come in and do a piece that's great. You know, most time you do that because the producer is there, whatever, you know, but most of the time I just, I just talk to you, get a feel for them. Or I've seen their work already and I kind of know mm -hmm. um, they're going to be right or not right for that. Uh, or there may be something that they didn't think about. Oh, yeah, you came in for this, but I think you be much better here, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I like to do. I mean, I like to, well, I love seeing people's work. I mean, I love attending theater. Um, so yeah, of course, it's like me and the audience member, this is hard for me now when you don't have it. So I've been finding myself trying to find a screen, screen stuff and see what I like and reading the different articles about how to do screening and, you know, is it going to work? in the future. I had an idea 25 years ago, Sam, <clears throat> that I wanted to, now it's going to, now it's going to be done. I'm, I'm going to say it out loud because I'm sure somebody's going to do it. Do it. But it's already been done because of my friend, uh, Ted, um, Ted, um, Ted Ross, um, not Ted Ross, I'm sorry. Um, Ted Lange has been doing it with his Shakespeare piece. And I wanted to do probably 25 years ago, I wanted to do a piece where actors were in different cities. And we would be doing this piece, you know, I'd be directing it. So now it's possible because of Zoom or WebEx or whatever, you know, platform you use, you can do that, you know. Um, but at that time, the technology didn't exist the way I wanted to do it. Um, there was an organization in upper New York who had all, like the, all the bells and whistles. And they said, well, we, we can't do it. We want to do it, but we can't do it. You know, we just, we're just not there yet. So. I'm excited about this, and I, so I still want to do that, um, do that in different cities. You know, I can do it with my, uh, with my podcast, with the radio drama. I can do it with different uh, actors in different cities. You know, because uh, you just record. You got a script that you want to do it? Let me know. I got, I got the connect here with the theatrical response team, and we can make that okay. happen. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I'd, I'd love cool. to, I'd love to produce that, spearhead that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Let's do it. Let's That's do it. All right. That's why you had these conversations, right? Huh? <laughs> That's why you had these conversations, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's definitely about, I've, I have these conversations for a lot of reasons. I have these, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say that. Rubik's Cube, yeah. that's my safe word. Yeah. I have these conversations for a lot of reasons. There you go. Yeah. You go. Um, always with the best intentions. <laughs> always awesome. With the best intentions. Awesome. Might be my best intentions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When um when you talk about the change that you've seen in the last five years in terms of Colorado theater, the community, um, it, what what types of changes are you talking about? Well, I see people willing to cast locally. First off, when you're talking about the big regional theater, you know, I'm talking about the Denver Theater Theater Company. Um, so they have taken a real different approach, uh, the casting more locally, which is fantastic. Uh, when I first um, I was a, one of the first actors hired at the Denver Center Theater Company in 1979. Uh, it was myself, Rich Beal, 
and Del Rolindo, who were actually in the New York Times on the stage and Moby Dick rehearsed. Um, you with Del Rolindo? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that guy. Yeah, he's five, awesome. Five, five, the five bloods, man. He's uh, he's all over it, you know? Oh, I cannot wait to watch Five Blood, the five yeah. bloods. It's awesome. It's awesome. Is he is especially, you know, because he, you know, he comes from the theater and he got, you know, that's a real, it's, it spikes to me is like a real take on the, theater for him because he's been doing a lot more things around theater, recording theater and, and those kind of things. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. So with that, uh, being that first season there, uh, and, you know, probably 12 seasons after that, there was not that many um, people of color that would come through there. Um, sure, there would be a show or two, or um, but I will say that every time they, they they allowed me to use a platform, especially uh, when we were doing a lot of protests um, against apartheid, uh, we we were allowed to do several shows that were not like theater production; they were just conversations and and kind of like protests uh, about the treatment of um, Black South Africans. Um, so. That's one thing that they, they did at that time, that particular administration. But there was a gap in there where, except for the August Wilson plays, there wasn't much happening, you know. Uh, but now I think there's a there's been a real a shift towards that theater's concern. And this other theater company, Curious Theater, uh, when I was able to work with uh, Charlie Packer at the Royal Fox, we were able to do pretty much um, a uh, mixture of any kind of casting we wanted to do with those kind of shows. And we, and also I would have to say for people like that, you had that here because they wouldn't listen. They, you know, Charlie would say, teach me, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a white male of privilege. I don't know. That's the kind of conversation people have to have. And when, when I think theaters here in Colorado really want to do the work, um, Colorado Springs just hired an artistic new artistic director. Um, once you hire artistic directors, scenic designers, directors, producers, um, actors, you know, costumers, so on and so forth of color, then you're doing the work. If your board is really mixed, then you're doing the work. Until you do that, it's just lip service to me. Okay, and and some are trying. And it's, I want, no, I'm not saying it's easy to do that because you're dealing with so many years of not doing it. Um, Sometimes the community doesn't trust you or, you know, the particular right candidate is not there. However, at least try, at least really do it. Don't just talk about it and don't give somebody some, some little peanuts. Uh, and so we've done this work, you know, you, you produce one show a year or whatever, great, but it's just actors. What about those other people? What about your staff? You know, what about your box office? What about your, your you know, your ad man? Let's have that. There's great ad mans, you know? I, mean, I came out of, you know, um, Yale School of Drama and administration. So there administrators out there ready to do the work. Hire them. Board members who want to come on board so that you're, uh, everything in your theater company or your film production company, whatever, reflects the community that you are involved with. You can't just keep doing the same old stuff all the time, too. And also, change up your programming. My goodness, you know? <laughs> I want to do, you can't take it with you eight times a year. 
What's that? I want to do You Can't Take It With You eight times a year. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, you can do it once. Okay, great. All right, one, I'll, I'll, but I'll one go. theater, but not eight theaters. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> no, because the classes, you know, they have their things, you know? Totally. Uh, I, I heard today, I, I wasn't, I hadn't really familiar with the title of the song, um, but it's from South Pacific. And the song is, um, you know, basically saying hate is learned. You're not born that way. It's learned, and we know that. But here's theater once again. Here's art once again making that impact. Look at Les Miserables, sending them home. That could cover any troops from any era. All those kind of things. Now, before, Sam, here I am mentioning musical. I could, I would never talk about a musical 20 years ago until I met Linda, my wife. <laughs> she does musical theater. So I've learned from musicals the power that they have as well, too, you know, to be agents for change. So all I'm saying about when it comes to art, do what you do, but really diversify it. You know, and I'm not just talking about the people you see on stage, I'm talking about everybody behind it. Until that is done, and also with people who spread their dollars around, who can afford to spread their dollars around, diversify those dollars as well. Don't just support the one theater all the time. It's great that you do, but there are others that could use your help as well too. Maybe talk to them about collaborating with a theater they never thought about joining up with. See what kind of magic can happen, you know? So that's, that's what I'm about. I've been trying to do this ever since I've, came back to Denver from Yale, is having people work together. Man, but people are dug in. They just wanna, they wanna work and do their thing, which is fine, you know, but they have their mission, their vision, but expand that, that's all I ever ask. Expand that, see what else is out there, what's available to you. It's so funny, I mean, it, it feels like when they tell you that, when they, or then when they don't wanna collaborate, it's like, well, it's, it's not rogue, so why should we fix it over here? But they're not seeing the system that could be fixed or at least aided in its recovery yes. by opening themselves up. Right, right. Exactly. Just like what we're doing, systemic racism, talk about systemic racism, systemic police brutality, uh, systemic poverty. Uh, that's because it's ingrained. Just like I mentioned the words, uh, hate is learned. Yeah. So is that. All those things, is they're learned. So until we can teach our younger people, our children, and the people who've been around forever to change their mindset, their way of thinking, nothing's going to change. I saw something beautiful the other day. Uh, there was a protest, I think it was in California, and there was um, anti-protesters and protesters, and um, they actually came together and started talking. And I guess two of them, I spoke for like over an hour. And before that hour, they were like this. By the end of the hour, at least they were here. They were a little bit closer. They were talking, they understood each other, you know? And everybody has a value. You just got to hear what that value is and um, see if you can come to a common ground. You know, nobody's trying to take anything uh, from you. Everybody, you know, you're going to take away our rights to do this, to bear arms, whatever the case may be. Well, frankly, you don't really need to be bearing arms. Um, you know, <laughs> who needs that? You know, all a gun is going to do is take someone's life or even your life. 
So um, my whole thing about bare arms to the people at home, like there were army troops in DC and ain't nobody pissed off out right. there with their guns fighting them. Right. So all that nonsense you tell me about, well, I don't want the government taking my guns. Well, they're out there on the streets now. That's what you were worried about. Right. Anyway, I digress. Okay. You know, yeah. that's what we, that's what we do. It's all good. <laughs> all right. I'll go all right sure. <laughs> you got a couple, got a couple questions for me there. Cause I don't have oh, any man, I, got a couple, I got a couple of rapid fires for you. Are you ready okay. for this? Yeah, I hope so. All right, then. Where do you get your news from? Where I get my news from? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Everywhere that I can. Um, BuzzFeed, New York Times, uh, sometimes the Denver Post, um, everywhere. Um, um, shoot. Um, I'm losing the name of it now. Shoot. A couple of black publications. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to blink on it. But yeah, everywhere. Uh, what I try to do is read as many points of view as possible. That's great. Um, let's see, what uh, movie or play do you think deserves a reboot? Whew, wow. Well, unfortunately, one that I was right for the times because of COVID, not going to be able to done. That's ragtime. Um, you know, because each one of those individuals were um, uh, brutalized and you know killed in some way by the police. Uh, plus, it's great. Um, great music, um, make them hear you. One of those songs that's great from there. Um, so it's been done a couple of times now, but I hope it can be done again um, as soon as COVID is over. So that's one I can think of. The very first play that I directed, um, Sam, uh, was that uh, Sutiracho, but it wasn't Sutiracho at that time. Um, it was Henry Lowenstein's place. It was called Split Second. And Split Second is about a black police officer who shoots someone in the alley. In a split second, they had to make that decision. So was it justified or not? And I don't know if you know Damien Hoover or not. Damien did a lot of work with Curious Theater and just a brilliant actor. Um, that one, Damien was in that way back when. But that shows you we're still there. And this was, I don't know, 30 years ago or more. Uh, so split second. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind doing that again. And of course, I love to do, um, I'm not talking about national ones now, I'm talking about the ones that are near and dear to my heart. Who killed Jigaboo Jones? My Jeff Campbell. You know, we did that down at the laundry, um, down off of um, uh, Rapid Hall. <clears throat> so that really tells a tale of um, uh, the hip hop industrial complex, but it talks about the system of racism. Uh, as well, too. So those are things I like to, like to see done again. See, what is uh, the backdrop on your phone? On my phone? Yeah. Yes, uh, what, whatever came with it. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Just not creative on those things. <laughs> no judges, man. No judges. <laughs> Got you. Who's your favorite musician of all time? Man, I've been asked this before, and that is really, really hard because I have so many. Uh, I mentioned Oscar Brown Jr. Um, near and dear to me. If, you know, first off, he allowed me to film his life, so um, very, very honored that he would do that. Um, 
Music-wise, homie, right now I'm digging some uh, Renee Marie, who's a great, great singer, um, and used to be here in Colorado. I moved back to Virginia, um, like some such. Um, this is just people, but I, Gregory Porter, I'm a big fan of. I don't know if you know his music or not, but you have to listen to his 1968, what? Um, so he talks about the rides then, okay? Um, but um, of all time, probably Donny Hathaway. Probably Donny Hathaway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now Stephen would be mad. Stephen Wonder would. <laughs> And my, and my grandsons love Stephen Wonder, too, so... Well, every, hey, Stevie's got enough love. Don, let Donnie have <laughs> to, all my, to all my ghosties at home listening, make sure after you're done listening to this podcast, go go to Spotify, pull up your favorite Donnie Hathaway record, let it play. Yes. Let it play. Oh, yes. Let it play. Who's your first celebrity crush? I hope the wife isn't in the room. I don't want you to get in trouble. Oh, <laughs> oh celebrity crush. Man. That's hard. I I um love Thelma from Good Times back in the day. <laughs> that was one of my crushes. <laughs> And then uh, most recently, only because uh, I used to uh, see her photograph every single day when I walked into to, uh, a building at Yale. Oh, and that was Angela Bassett. Her picture was up on the wall behind Jake. Jake was a security guard, an amazing person too. Her picture was there and I always said, wow, who's that? You know, and then I got a chance to, to, to meet her, of course, and we became friends and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, she was, it was a crush. I mean, you know, it was very innocent, you know. I just, and then when I saw her work, I was so blown away. I saw her in Joe Turner's Come and Gone uh, and, and at the arena stage. And um, because as an admin student, part of what we had to do, we helped to move the, the shows when we were out, I was at Yale. Uh, so that's one of the um, places that it moved to, arena, arena stage. So, you know, you don't know, um, uh, Martha's uh, character doesn't come on to almost the end, and she has to come on fire. Okay, I'm like oh my god, you know, she's gifted. You know, and you see what she's going on to do. So, um, but I'm, I'm honored to call her friend, and, uh, um, and I'm glad she's doing what she's doing the work. But I would say probably like I said, <laughs> Thelma. I loved. Um, oh, she uh, Deborah. Deborah. I used to watch after school, I would go home and watch um, uh, All My Children, uh, the soap opera. And so Jesse and, um, Jesse and, uh, oh shoot, now I'm going blank. Uh, that, you know, they had this great love affair and uh, Deborah, Deborah, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going blank on her name. But anyway, that was another crush for me too, because, you know, it was such a strong, beautiful couple together and a black couple. Um, on daytime TV, there were you know, nothing but love for each other. So that was probably one of my crushes too. Yeah. Who's Good question, Mickey. Of course. Who's your first car? What's that? 
first car? What was your first the car? car? Yeah. First car that I owned? First car that I owned was a, a white Corvair. Um, yeah. When I moved, when I, yeah, when I moved to Colorado, I had all kind of jalopies and stuff, but that was the first car I really just kind of owned myself because it was always my brother's cars, you know. Um, and they always had very nice cars, you know. So, but I had a white Corvair. I remember driving past the zoo and on 23rd past uh, the big you know, church on the corner there. It was snowing. And I hit my brakes and I'm headed west. And then I spin all the way around and I'm headed east. And I said, okay, I'm going home. <laughs> I didn't know how to drive. I've never driven in the snow. I've been from Texas to California, you know, the snow, no. Um, so, but that was my first car, that little Corvair, man. It got me around for quite a while, but it was not good in the snow. <laughs> now that's a car that's meant to be seen. That's not a tag. Right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My last question for you. Yes. Annie Betts. Yes. What do you wish was that ghost light that was left? Which ghost light do you wish was left on for you when you started your career? I'm gonna put it just not in necessarily in a theater context, but kind of in the theater context. I left the ghost light left on for me to step in the shoes of those who wanted to make a change but were taken before they could make that change. So I want to leave a light on for them too. I'm glad you asked me this question because every night my wife and I try to go outside and we shine our flashlights in the sky for eight minutes and 46 seconds was George Floyd. So that's my ghost light for him and for everybody else who's been taken from us before their time. Oh yeah, that's good, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the man is Daniel Betts. He is, I'm just gonna say it, he's an icon, pay respect. Huh. Listen to what he says. He's a good man. He's not going to steer you wrong. Um, ladies and gentlemen, episode 54 of the podcast is the Ghost Lights podcast. The song is War by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. Please go out and download this. What? Yes, sir. That's my really? thing. Yeah. Man, Chicago. Hell yeah. Did you watch that PBS documentary about that family? Brother, I know them. You know them? <laughs> I mentioned Oscar Brown Jr.? His Don't dude, let them sue me. These, these are his best friend's children. Wow. Okay. And so when I used to go in and out of Chicago for my filming, they would be playing on the streets, sometime in front of Macy's or somewhere else like that. And, you know, I would give them that money or whatever, but man, they would be rocketing on the street corners and they just had a huge following. They also played at Oscar's funeral. So yeah. So right on, man. Good taste. Thank you. Good brothers, you know. Yeah, strong family. Phil Karan was their father. Amazing musician, played, you know, like seven, eight instruments. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So. Um, real talk, if you can put me in contact with one of their representatives, I'd love to get their official permission to use that song. Okay, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been, been pumping their name every time we do the pod, I, and I'm hoping I'm directing business their way. Yeah, I'm absolutely. not trying to get money off of it, but I want to make sure that if I could have their blessing, that'd be great. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, and the doc is good. Yeah, so. 
Yeah. Right on, man. Right on. Good taste. Good taste. Thanks, Thank you, Don. <laughs> Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Donnie Betts, episode 54 of the Ghost Lights Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And um, just thank you for everything, Donnie. My honor. Thank you. Absolutely. Dan, do the damn thing. <laughs> Thank you.